0: Thanks for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. Welcome to the Great Prayers of the Bible series. Our calling is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We are a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. To learn more, please visit waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Tislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people In the presence of this man, I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Uh, Let's let's pray. Father, I pray that you would really work on us this morning as we uh, talk about what it takes to be really... uh, um, people of prayer and what that looks like in our lives. May your spirit mess with us and challenge us and encourage us and convict us. Most of all, may may he transform us this morning as we wrestle with your word and what it means in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. I don't know about for you, but for me, prayer is tough. <laughs> it's, it's just hard work. It doesn't come easily, at least for me. And My guess is for a lot of you, it doesn't come easily either. It's, it's tough. It's hard work. Uh, um, I know for some people, it comes really easy. Uh, I believe that. And if you're one of those people, awesome. Um, because I think prayer should come easy to us. After all, it's just uh, talking with God, right? Uh, And as we pointed out at the beginning of this series, uh, prayer in its essence, at the core of it, is this notion of asking, petition. We come before God with our requests. And the conviction we have uh, as people of faith is that God is listening and that he responds uh, to our prayers, Uh, Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says not yet, uh, or sometimes he says yes, but not as you expected. Um, But but when you think about that, that's an amazing thing that we can ask and God listens. Because it gives us what what I'd like to call uh, agency, the, the power to shape the nature of things. In other words, we believe that prayer uh, influences God and God influences the world. So in a sense, uh, because we can pray and and God listens, because we can ask and he listens, he really entrusts us with just a, a little piece of omnipotence. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So all of that is to say that we need to really work hard to be good at prayer, to be effective at prayer. And uh, quite honestly, that's why we, we chose to do this series on the great prayers of the Bible. We've been looking at the Old Testament and examples of prayer because our desire is to look at those and see, okay, what can, what can we learn from this to help us uh, uh, be better at, at this critical gift that's given to us in, in terms of of prayer. This morning, we're going to look at a man who was incredible at prayer. I mean, if you read through the book of Nehemiah, one of the things you discover is he prayed a lot. The other thing you discover is God listened to him a lot. God, God answered. So he, I don't know whether it came hard to him or easy to him, but I know he was really good at it. And I want us to learn from him this morning how to be effective Uh, uh, Prayer, And I'm going to give you the big idea right up front this morning, okay? This is it. To be effective at prayer, uh, we must have good eyes, great hearts, tough knees, and and willing feet, all right? Uh, And if that doesn't make much sense to you, hopefully by the end it, it will, all right? Good eyes, great hearts, tough knees, and willing feet. Let me give you a little background of what's going on with Nehemiah so we can put it in context. Uh, 586, Babylon comes against uh, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and takes all the influentials, all the important people, the rich, the leaders, the educated in Jerusalem, and takes them into exile, takes them back. To Babylon, we, we describe that as the exile, And that should sound familiar to you because we talked a, a lot about it in terms of Ezekiel. That was the context for Ezekiel. It's the context for the book of Nehemiah as well. Only we're about 150 years removed from that event at this point. Um, about 50 years after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, uh, God raises up a, a man named Cyrus the Great. He's a king of Persia. And he attacks uh, Babylon and conquers Babylon. And as a result, Israel and Jerusalem now are under the jurisdiction and the authority of the Persian Empire. And the Persians are a little different than the Babylonians. This is important to understand. The Babylonians, to keep control, exiled all the influential people from a community or a city. The Persians have a different strategy. They want these cities, these, the, these other um, kingdoms, in a sense, to flourish. Not because they're magnanimous, but because they're greedy. (laughs) They figure if those other cities and places are doing well, they can tax the heck out of them. And so what their policy is to send the exiles back, to encourage them to go back and to rebuild. And that begins to happen over the course of the next 200 years, 50,000 Jews make their way back to the land of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem and begin to rebuild everything there. So the year that we pick up the story is um, 446. Artaxerxes is now the king of Persia. Nehemiah is what is known as a cupbearer of the king. What, what that means is he is a very trusted person. He has the responsibility of tasting all the food and all the drink that goes to the king as a way of preventing the king and his family from being poisoned. All right? So this is, this is a, a position of, of uh, significant trust and responsibility. Now, we don't know a lot about Nehemiah. We're not told much about his family, whether he has a wife or not, or kids. Most scholars don't think he did. They think he actually was a eunuch uh, because he has access to the king and his family and the king's harem. Um, so he's probably a, a, a eunuch. And the first thing we discover about Nehemiah, and this fits With his ability to prayer, is he has really good eyes? Look look at verse one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Susa was the summer palace of King Artaxerxes. So he is with the king in Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, he evidently has relatives back in Jerusalem. Came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, so They didn't come to give a report. I think they were just coming to, to visit the brother. But Nehemiah is curious. And he's curious because he sees certain things. And he wants to know what is happening to those who survived the exile and those who are back in, in Jerusalem. And he wants to know uh, about Jerusalem. And there's two things he, he sees that he deems important. The people and the wall. Now remember, the people who, who he's talking about or concerned about are, are the survivors of the... They're the leftovers, right? They're the left behind. They're the people who weren't exiled. They're, they're the non-influentials. They're the unimportant people. They're, they're the marginal. <laughs> in one sense, they're the drags of society. And, and quite honestly, the exiles who are still most of them living in Babylon don't really... Um, well, it's not that they don't care about the, ex- uh, the people back in Babylon. They don't. It's just that they're preoccupied with their own... They're kind of myopic. They only see what is close to them. <laughs> After all, uh, the exiles were the important people. They're not much concerned about the unimportant people. So they don't care much. But Nehemiah does. And, and what he hears, or the report is... They said those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. This, this word for trouble is the Hebrew word ra'ah and simply means evil. In this context, it means disaster, calamity. And it's paired with this notion of great intent, uh, It's intense trouble. Thing, things are really bad for the people. And then he says... They're in great trouble and disgrace. And that word is interesting. It actually means something that is pointed or piercing. And it's describing a a deep feeling inside these people who are still in Jerusalem of shame. Okay? Their world has crumbled. It's not getting any better. They're oppressed from enemies on every side. They're taken advantage of. It's utter disaster. Things are terrible for the, the people one of the questions you have to ask is, why is Nehemiah concerned about these people in the first place? I mean, yes, they're people and all people matter. But, you know, lots of people at that time (laughs) had it tough. Why is he particularly concerned about the survivors in Jerusalem? I think it's because Nehemiah understands that they have a critical role to play in the agenda of God, right? Right? The Messiah is going to come from this community of people. God's covenant promises are going to be fulfilled in these people in Jerusalem. They are absolutely essential for God's plan for the whole of creation. Nobody else may pay attention to these people, but to God, they're critically important for his agenda. And Nehemiah clues in on that. These people matter. They're they're important. We need to know what's going on with them. The second thing that Nehemiah takes note of is the wall, right? Right? They tell him that uh, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been buried, uh, burned with fire. So in that day, you'd build a wall around a city and the, you needed a way for people to get in and out so the, gates would not, the wall would be made of stone typically, uh, but the, the gates would be, be made of wood because they had to open and close. And it's just rubble. Gates are burned, dysfunctional. And you think, okay, well, I mean, this is kind of a logistical, pragmatic, uh, 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 infrastructure thing. Why is Nehemiah even concerned about the wall? Well, I think there's two things going on here. Walls were incredibly important for security, right? Um, This was a world that was incredibly brutal where where might made right. You know, yeah, Persians kind of ruled the place overall, but they were 1,600 miles away. So you had to take care of yourself. And part of the way they did that, around their cities, they would build these walls that gave them protection and these strong gates so they, they could keep robbers and raiders and enemies out. If you didn't have that, you were were vulnerable. It would be like having a house in the inner city of the, well, in the Bronx in New York where crime is rampant and having a house that that didn't have doors uh, or windows. I mean, how safe would you feel? You know, could you flourish in that kind of environment? Probably not. And uh, they're not flourishing. And what's really fascinating. Not only was this an issue of security, but, but both these issues have kind of a missional issue behind them. And this is what, what Nehemiah ultimately gets to. It's not just that they're insecure, but he understands what Jerusalem meant in God's kingdom, right? Jerusalem at that moment in history what was the place where God dwelt because that was the location of his temple. And thus, It was a signpost or a witness to the rest of the world of God's honor. If the wall is rubble, and the temple is rubble as well, if it's all a mess, what does that say about the nature of God to the rest of the world? And Nehemiah gets that. Uh, Nehemiah sees it. But I'm not sure anybody else sees it. It's really interesting that when Cyrus came to the throne, uh, when he conquered the Babylonians, it was 150 years previous to this. He gave people the authority not only to return but to rebuild and he provided resources and permission to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall and yet for 150 years, they haven't done it. And you go, What's going on with these guys? This is, this is not optional, this is absolutely essential. Uh, you know, th- th- we, we do that kind of thing in our life. I mean, we, we put a, uh, uh, we postpone the essential because it's too much of a bother. We don't get the oil changed in our car. We don't go for the mammogram or the colonoscopy because it's too much of a bother, right? Even though it's essential. Quit whispering to each other. <laughs> um, and it was essential, but they, they didn't. Here's the first thing you learn about Nehemiah. He sees what other people doesn't. He sees life from God's perspective. He sees things that, that most people will say, well, it's, no, it's not really that big a deal. Walls crumbled and people are struggling. Welcome to life. Not for Nehemiah. He has eyes that see as God sees. Which raised for me a really fascinating question. I want you to wrestle with it for just a moment. The question is this. From God's perspective, what are the five top issues that he's concerned about in the world? Make a list in your mind. What really is on God's heart? I was intrigued with that question this week, so I began to ask uh, everybody I came into contact with, okay, what do you, what you think, uh, what's on God's heart? Five top things going on in the world that God really cares about that are, are priority issues to him. And it's been fascinating, great conversations the, the, this week. I'm going to share with you some of the things that, that people said, all right? One of the things that came up was the lostness of people. Do you know in our world 60 to 70 percent of the people do not know Christ, 176,000 people die daily and over 100,000 of those don't know Jesus? Someone told me a while back that 90 percent of the people who live in our community around Waterstone uh, uh, don't, know, don't know Jesus. I think that's an issue with God. I, I just do. Interesting, Uh, another issue that came up, and this was near the top for a lot of people, and it was a number of things, but they all centered around issues of mercy and compassion. Uh, The refugee crisis, the immigration situation, the plight of the unborn, what's going on in terms of people struggling who are poor, the sick, the mentally ill, the mentally challenged, the forgotten elderly, the abused. And people are saying, you know, it says that uh, God wants us to be people of mercy and compassion. That's because he's God of mercy and compassion. So those things register to him, and they're not at the bottom of the list. They're really important. He sees them, and they grieve him. Then people suggested issues of justice. Uh, You know, all those situations where people's rights are ignored or abused, you know, where people are trafficked or enslaved or oppressed, or taken advantage of, or mistreated, or considered less than human, uh, racism, discrimination. Uh, just a, somebody said, and I thought this was insightful, just a level of corruption in all our institutions, from government to business, don't, that does not go unnoticed by God, and that matters to him. He sees the injustice of the world, and it, and it grieves him. Then I thought this was a fascinating one. Somebody said, I think really God God is very concerned about the nominalism of his people. Nominalism simply means to be something in name only. And they were talking about, uh, uh, you know, people who claim to be Christian who are really only Christian in name only. Because what we've done is we've lowered the bars uh, uh, so that any kind of decision makes you a believer, whether there's any transformation or not. Uh, um, I was talking to one of our staff and they were telling the story about they were traveling in Africa and, and one of the things she noticed is that, that the, the, the cost of becoming a believer in Africa was far higher in America. They came into this village and there was this older lady who was an animist who, had, who committed her life to Christ. And the moment she committed her life to Christ, she, she went in uh, to her, her hut and her place where she lived and she gathered all her idols. And she walked them out and put them at the center of the village. And then she uh, set them on fire. And I thought, wow, what would that look like for us if we gathered all our idols and walked out and set them on fire? Would we have as many people raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus? (laughs) I don't know. I thought this was was fascinating, didn't... uh, well, one guy said, you know, I think God is absolutely concerned about the local church. He said, it's still the best idea for the transformation of our lives, the implementation of our mission, the experience of community, the teaching of truth. It's incredibly flexible, resilient. It's health and strength are in his heart. Uh, um, and this person said, but, but, but you know, it's becoming more optional in our World and in our culture. When I started ministry at Waterstone thirty years ago, people came to church if you were committed about three out of four weeks. Uh, just a couple of years ago, they took a survey and found out it was one point seven times a month. Uh, this summer, I'm pretty convinced it's about maybe one point two times a month, and it just—it's it, like it's optional to us. And I think we're reaping the uh, the. the, the what we've sowed, we, we've taught people, it's really just about you and Jesus making the decision following him and ah, church is a good thing, you know. And we've become the ultimate consumers when it comes to church. If it's good, if the teaching is what I want and the music happens to be my style, then, then I'll show up sometime, sometime. Especially if the kids don't have soccer or there's no game going on or the Broncos aren't playing or I'm not essentially tired, you know. Folks, that's, that's, that's not reflective of God's heart. It's, it just isn't. His, his church is absolutely essential that we're part of this community. And I'm not just talking, showing up on Sunday morning and hearing the sermon. I'm talking about becoming part of this thing, this community, this, 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 this body that's headed by Jesus. And I think, doggone it, God cares about that. And that if you're not here on a Sunday morning, you're not part of what he's doing, you better have a, excuse me, a darn good reason. Or it's simply, absolutely disobedience and crappy priorities. Okay, you're here, I'm talking to the choir. (laughs) Somebody said idolatry, somebody said materialism, somebody I thought this was good, marriage and family. Marriage is a key institution because it's foundational family and family is kind of the building block. Uh, of our society. Now, now here's the thing that, that I've been wrestling with. I don't know if you wrestle with it. If those are the things that God cares about that are on his heart, then I think we have to ask ourselves, are those the things that are on my heart? Are those the things that trouble us? Are, are, they, the, are they even the things we take note of as concerns to God? Do we give any emotional energy to those? I wonder sometimes if we just don't see it because we're like the exiles, we're pretty myopic. We only see what's in front of us, what's near, our own struggles. I mean, we're concerned with that, aren't we? And I just wonder if we, we, we don't have good eyes because we don't put on kingdom glasses. We don't see the world from his perspective. And that bleeds into how we pray and what we pray for. I I think that's where where being effective in prayer starts. You have to have good eyes. But but the second thing, it doesn't stop there. You you, you then have to have a great heart. Um, Let's go back to verse 4. So he sees all this. He hears about the trouble of the people and the crumbled walls. And I want you to notice his response. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. I mean, he hears hears about this stuff that other people don't even care about. And it just wrecks Nehemiah. And you ask, why does it wreck him? Because it wrecks God. Nehemiah's heart breaks where God's heart breaks. Do the things that break God's heart break our hearts? I mean, when was the last time you wept? I'm not talking about a sad movie. And I'm not talking about the last time somebody hurt you and you wept. I'm talking about the last time you wept because something external to you and bigger than you was so broken, so wrong, it moved you and it wrecked you. It's not a very long list for me, but it should be. And then you have to ask the question, okay, then if I'm to have God's heart and my heart is to break where God's heart breaks, how how do I get his heart? And I think the answer to that is that we are to have such a deep relationship with the God of the universe that it becomes transformative for us. Reminded of that passage in James chapter four, verse 8, where it says, "Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you." And I think there's this dynamic that is, we, we know him better and understand his mind and his heart and his desires and his will and his passions and his compassions. And, and, and as we, we understand him, it begins to rub off on us. I was having breakfast um, with a guy who we were in at the same church 30 years ago and I haven't seen him probably for 20 plus years and I'm having breakfast with him his sister actually is is part of Waterstone and I know her and I'm talking to this guy and I start thinking man he just seems so familiar to me and that and then it hit me oh yeah this gal is his sister and he and her have these same mannerisms. And it's so bizarre to to just talk to him and you go, oh yeah, that's just like, oh, that's hilarious, you know. Well, why is that? Because they're brother and sister. There's a family resemblance. They grew up in the same house. They rubbed off on each other. It's how the family works. And I thought to myself, oh, I get it. Right, we're children of God. There's supposed to be a family resemblance. He's supposed to rub off on us. We're we're to have his heart. And then I realized, and this was the convicting part for me. You know, I'm to have God's heart, and my heart is to be a reflection of his heart. And if my heart doesn't reflect his heart, then maybe there's something wrong. So, So if God says, you know, I really it wrecks me the number of people who are lost who don't know me, and I don't care about that, there's something wrong. If God says, you know, the, there's this quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, they're on God's heart. He has incredible compassion for them. And if I don't have compassion for the poor and the immigrant and the marginal in our, our midst, That's a problem. Because my heart's not reflecting his heart. And if I just think when it comes to issues of justice, and people being mistreated and the oppressor, that's over there, that's not my experience, I don't need to worry about it, and it doesn't move me and it doesn't bother me, then I'm not reflecting God's heart. That's a problem, there's, there's no family resemblance there. That, that's a big deal. If I could care less about God's bride, his church, And it's just down on the list as a possibility, not even an option, just a possibility. There is something fundamentally wrong with my faith, something's off. And he say, oh yeah, I, I, I'm so close to God's heart. Man, in worship I weep and I cry and I have this emotional experience. that's all great. I don't really care because that's not the measure of God's heart. The measure of God's heart is that you care about what he cares about. Not that you have an emotional experience, but that you connect with what wrecks him. And uh, quite honestly, folks, we made our faith and our relationship to Jesus all about us. It really is. It's just about us. That's, you know, it's, if you're lost and you're lonely and you need forgiveness and you're guilty, and all that is true, don't mishear me, all that is true, but it's just not, that's derivative of our faith that Jesus died to save the world. What our faith is that we, we get his heart, we begin to exhibit his family values and we've privatized our faith, and we've privatized our religion, and we've privatized our relationship with Jesus, and we miss that God came to save the world. And what he cares about is what we need to care about. And if we don't care about that, then we've misframed our faith. And we may think we're drawn near to God, but if it isn't making us people of radical compassion who care about mercy and justice, who are, 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 are brokenhearted about what's going on in our world and in our country and things don't move us, then all we care about is our pocketbook and our security and our comfort. Something's off. when Pew Research, and Pew Research does good research, come back and say that the the group of people who who thinks America has the least responsibility to do something about the refugee crisis, the people who, who think they have very little, the highest group, white evangelicals. That's not God's heart, folks. That is just... That's not how God thinks or what he values or it's not reflective. Something's wrong. Okay. Good eyes, good hearts that get wrecked. And then tough needs. Let's go back to verse four for just a second. So when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And then he says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So his first recourse when he hears this devastation that he knows is breaking God's heart, it breaks his heart. So what does he do? He prays. And if you know the rest of the book of Nehemiah, in chapter two, he goes and talks to the king and asks the king to give him permission to go. Um, and we read that book and we think, oh yeah, he found out, and the next day he was before the king. This is a very carefully dated narrative. So this is the month of Kislev, which is december four forty six. Chapter 2, we're told it's the month of Nisan, uh, 4, 445. So, so Nehemiah is praying for six months and fasting for six months. Tough knees. Right? Tough knees. And what's really, really, really interesting to me is what do you think Nehemiah should be praying about? Right? If I, if I, I'd be praying, God, rebuild the wall. God, get people to put the wall back up. God, take away the trouble from the exiles, uh, the people who survived the exile. Uh, take the trouble away. <laughs> That's not what Nehemiah prays. I want to look, let's look at his prayer. The First thing, verse 5, he starts with the nature of God. Right? Um, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the sovereign, supreme, powerful one who keeps his covenant. He is this covenant of hesed, of love. So he really understands the nature of God. With those who love him, keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of servants praying for it before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. It's like, you know when you go into an automatic car wash, you gotta line up your car just right so that the wheel stays in between the barriers. I think that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's kind of reminding himself of the nature of God because it provides the barriers, uh, the, the the bumpers for his prayer. It's just reflective of how much he he resembles the heart of God. You see why? Because he knows him. He knows him. All right. So he begins with the nature of God. Then guess what he does? Blows you away. Verse six b. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Go away, what? Huh? Yeah, we, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws and gave you, sir, you servant Moses. What? Now, now Nehemiah understands that the exile was divine judgment on the nation of Israel for their sin of idolatry and how they abused the people around and treated the poor, etc. That happened 150 years ago. Nehemiah wasn't alive. His family wasn't alive. So why the heck is he confessing sins that he didn't commit? Doesn't that bug you? Bug me. And, and the reason that bugs us, you want to know why it bugs us? It's because we're Americans. And one of our, our highest values is individual responsibility. What's interesting in Scripture? Scripture holds to and supports the notion of individual responsibility. We talked about in Ezekiel 18. But it also supports this notion of corporate culpability, corporate responsibility. And that we just don't get. Because we don't think we're responsible for anything but what we do. And Nima says, no. You, You see, this group of Israelite is my my community, my family, my identity, my nation, and what they, there's a solidarity. I'm part of the fabric of my people. And although in one sense I stand before God individually, in another sense I stand before God corporately. So what they're guilty of, I'm guilty of. What they're responsible for, I'm responsible for. What, it's a shared guilt, a shared culpability. I'm not hearing any amens. Because it grates against us, that's not how we think. We're missing the fact that life is fabric. That's why in the New Testament, when you become a believer, you become part of the body of Christ. It's not just your private relationship with Jesus, it's this community. It's why the church is so important, because we're part of this, this tapestry that God is using to paint his purposes in the world in this tapestry, the, the scriptures, Romans 12, says that it, we are individually members of one another. We're connected. So it's not just a matter of how I do in my relationship with Jesus, it's a matter of how we do in our relationship with Jesus. And if you mess up, it messes me up, and if I mess up, it messes you up, and we're in this thing together, and I'm individually responsible, and corporately responsible, and culpable. And see what happens to us is because we don't think in terms of solidarity and we don't think in terms of the community being responsible and us taking on culpability. When we hear about something wrong in the world what do we do? That's bad. Those people are bad. And you know what Nehemiah is doing? That problem is my problem. Not their problem. It's my problem. That's part, part, I'm part of that. My people are part of that. My community is part of that. I can't. I can't just opt out. I got to step up. So, look at the rest of his prayer. So he he goes through this confession. He begins with the nature of God. Gives confession. And then eleven, or or. Verse 11, oh, the rest, sorry, jumping in. No, go, go to 11, I'm really confusing Tara, sorry, my bad. Um, verse 11, eight. Lord, now, now this is his request. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. What, who's this man? The man is Artaxerxes. He's going in and, and you see, not only does he have good eyes and a great heart and tough knees, but he has a willing, he has willing feet because his request is going to be, our desert let me go. That problem, that's my problem. And he understands that because he's in a position to do something about it. Now, now, folks, you got, you got to understand, that should blow you away. I mean, think about it. Nehemiah is 1,600 miles away. <laughs> Nehemiah had never been planning to go back anyway. He, he's indentured to the king as a eunuch in the service of the most powerful man in the world. And, and quite honestly, Nehemiah has it made, right? He lives in the most luxurious digs anybody can live in king's court he eats the best food that anybody in his world eats the food of the king he, he's got access to the best wine <laughs> he, he's got this incredible career right because he's in this position of amazing trust and influence I, I mean he's at the top of his game <laughs> you think I want to leave Really? I've got it pretty good. No, no, no. I've got it great. But he says, no. That's my problem. I (laughs) I was prepping, I was reminded. This is an old thing. Uh, It's a little quip about whose job is it. Maybe you've heard this. This is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, nobody. Nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job, and everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. In the end, it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Nehemiah decides to be the nobody. So he goes to the king at incredible risk and ultimately incredible sacrifice and says, send me. If we want to be really good at prayer, we need good eyes, a great heart, tough knees, and willing feet. Amen. I want us to close this morning um, by praying together. Um, I want us to pray for our eyes, our heart, our knees, and our feet. So I want you to bow your head. I'm going to give a short prayer and then give you some time to pray about your eyes, heart, knees, and feet. And we'll go through this each one at a time. So let's bow our heads. And let's pray for our eyes. God, enable us to see the world as you do, to pay attention to what you see as important around us and in us. Let us be discerning and not distracted by our own self centeredness. Let us pray for our eyes. Let us pray for our hearts. God, let the things that break your heart break ours. Give us the compassion to care about what you care about. May the brokenness, injustice, lostness, hate, violence, oppression, and lack of love in our world move us to tears. Let us pray for our hearts. Let us pray for our knees. Lord, help us be people of prayer and a church of prayer. May falling on our knees and turning to you be our first response when we are in crisis or see our world in need. May we believe that you move the hearts of kings and princes and presidents and are at work in the national and international affairs of our cities, our nations, and our world. Let us pray for our knees. pray for our feet. Father, may we be moved to action. Move us to not simply sit on the sidelines, but to go and be involved in the things that matter to you, both little and large. May we not simply be observers of your kingdom work, but engage with our hearts, our hands, and our feet in the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray for our feet. Father, as your people, as your church, we want to bear a family resemblance we want to have your heart. Oh God, may the, the things that wreck you wreck us. May the things that break your heart break our hearts. May we be people who know, are known for our compassion and our love. May we follow you with all that we have and be your agents for your kingdom in this world may we be people of great prayer a church of great prayer work in us Lord change us and all God's people said To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.